Amen, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 30 this evening, and we're going to make an endeavor again to kind of go through the entirety of the chapter like we did last time. We're kind of rounding up our study uh, in this uh, workshop of wisdom with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, you'll notice beginning in verse 1, tells us the words of Agur, the son of Jekah, his utterance, and the, the, the term there, utterance, seems to be the same idea we get on occasion in the Word of God to speak of somewhat of a prophetic utterance. The idea is indicating that this was something coming from the Spirit, the Spirit of God was giving to him. And it says, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and to Eucal. Now, Notice here, we're informed by the Holy Spirit, as we're given this in the Word of God here, that these particular wise sayings that we find here in chapter 30 in front of us, they did not come from Solomon. A great deal of the Proverbs throughout the book that we've studied, the majority of them have come from Solomon as the human pen, if you would, that God's speaking by His Spirit, recording these words of wisdom for us. But here we're directly indicated that these were not from Solomon, they're from this man, uh, Agur. If you remember, in fact, back in chapter uh, 25, verse 1, we were told there the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah of Judah had copied. So it seems the last few chapters were Proverbs that were translated or were kind of written down out of oral transition uh, or tradition excuse me, by these men during King Hezekiah's reign. But this chapter particularly seems to give us some insights from this man, which in all honesty, we know nothing of who this man is that recorded these words of wisdom, uh, nor do we know anything about these two men who were the on the receiving end. We might say maybe they were his pupils, those who were his disciples, this individual, Ithiel and Eucal. This is the only place we find their name in the Bible. Uh, there's very little uh, of understanding of exactly who they were, which basically shows us that from a public standpoint, uh, they were unknown. Uh, there's nothing about them given to us in the Word of God, even tradition. Nothing's really known of them. So clearly they were no one famous. They were just ordinary individuals. They were sort of the nobodies in the kingdom of God, which most of us are, right? <laughs> The majority of us are kind of like these individuals. We're not among the who's who. Uh, we're among the who's he uh, or who's she. You know, we're, and that's who we are in God's kingdom. We're just ordinary individuals who, like Micah 6 says, we know how to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And we're not necessarily those who are well-known. We don't have some you know, world-famous recognition in some ways, as some do among the body of Christ. Yet nonetheless, notice, they were ordinary men devoted to God, but God used them. And God worked through their lives. And this is just a good reminder as these words of wisdom come through Agur, given to these two other men, his pupils or disciples, Ithiel and Eucal, that pure wisdom does it not. It all stems from God anyway. The Bible tells us that wisdom comes from God and that we all, James 1 says, can ask for wisdom and God gives it freely to all of us. Uh, we saw even in our study in Proverbs, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So whether we are an ordinary man or woman of God, we all are able to receive wisdom from God 
to speak and to share wisdom from God as if we're just willing to be a willing vessel. And how wonderful I love to see here that even this man, Agur, who records these things that the Holy Spirit gave to him, he didn't need a whole crowd to share these things. He didn't need a large audience in front of them. Apparently, he just wrote these things down and shared them. It says he declared these things to two men, to Ithiel and to Eucal. So he saw value in ministering to individuals. It didn't need to be a crowd of people. The wisdom he was imparting, whether it was through counseling or just sharing insight, just in a small way, writing, recording these things down. But let me say, it mattered. It mattered because God cares about individuals and God cares about what we do just as well for one person or two person that we would do for 20 people or 200 people or 2,000 people. And it's a wonderful thing to realize. Remember, Jesus said, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. Nothing is more of a pet peeve than mine on occasion when there'll be a Christian meeting, whether it's a church service or the start of a church service as everybody's wandering in late or whether it be any kind of a meeting and somebody draws attention to it seems like a smaller group is gathered. To me, that always saddens me because the reality is if two people showed up, Jesus is there. So let's not draw attention to who's not here. Oh, it looks like it's just going to be a small group. And it's almost as if we have to draw attention almost awkwardly to the fact that it seems like a smaller group. Why are, we, why are we paying attention to that? If two people are there, Jesus is there, that's a very important meeting. And I love to see here that these two men become the recipients of these Wonderful words of wisdom given to us in this chapter, and it mattered because, take notice, God chose to record this in Scripture, and it becomes a part of the book of Proverbs. What this unknown man wrote down for two people in his life became spirit-inspired Scripture that has reached for multitudes of us, you and I included, through generations down the road. You know, sometimes we may think, oh, all I'm doing this for is just one person, or I only got two people in front of me here. I'm not having much of an impact. How do you know? You have no idea. Maybe it was for one person. Maybe it was for two people, but God can take what's for one or two. And right here, God takes what was written down for two people, and it gets kept and solidified, and now all of us are benefiting from it. Uh, So again, good thing to keep in mind, whether it's our written word of things to pass on wisdom whether it's our spoken word, God can use those things long-term. You know, for years, I've been writing a family devotion for my family. I do the same thing on Wednesday. I wrote a little business devotional. I send it out to about 22 guys now. But the thing that's beautiful to me to realize is because that's written and recorded down, I always jokingly tell my family, look, when I die, sell that and make a book out of it. I don't have much else to leave to you, but maybe you could take that and eventually make a devotional out of the whole thing and sell it. Now, they, they probably won't be able to get much but a Happy Meal afterwards, but nonetheless, you know, God can retain what we share, and it may be the next person it's passed on to. It may be the other individuals. Maybe you share wisdom with one or two, but that person shares it with another one or two, and it continues to pass onward and brings great benefit. So here's what this man, Agor, shares. You'll notice a lot of the verses kind of are two, three things combined, we'll see as we go through this, kind of in groupings, a little bit different, the style of our Proverbs tonight in this chapter. But he starts out, verse 2, in a very encouraging way, surely I am more stupid than any man. So uh, that's a great admission to start with. You know, sometimes uh, 
we will give somebody a card and you know you put a scripture reference at the end of it like I like to do Matthew 6:33 if you want to play a joke on somebody next time put Proverbs 30 verse 2 you know then send them to go read it you know it'd be kind of a humorous way to play a little Christian prank on someone you know as they go and read your your reference verse he starts out with an admission really just of his humility here's this man he's imparting wisdom and verse 1 tells us he knows it's utterance from the Holy Spirit. He knows that this is spirit-inspired wisdom that he is passing on. But when he speaks, the first thing he acknowledges is really a declaration of his insufficient knowledge and understanding. He says of himself, surely I am more stupid than any man. And I don't have the understanding of a man. I neither have learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Now, seems to be what he's doing, again, is just making a declaration of humility, admitting, really, that he doesn't know everything. And what a wonderful thing to have that kind of a humble attitude to say, I'm still learning, and he's inferring here. It seems that I don't have a formal education. I'm not learned like other individuals, maybe scholars, philosophers who have you know, learned wisdom from great philosophical minds or the rabbis who've been able to study and learn things and increase their knowledge of the Holy One. It almost seems that he's kind of indicating, look, I'm just a humble individual and I honestly don't know everything and I admit that. And he's almost seeming to infer as well that again, he's not formally educated as some others were, but have we not seen in our study of Proverbs, at least in the first 29 chapters, that things like humility and a teachable attitude are crucial to having God's wisdom, right? How many times have we seen that, like other recurring themes throughout the book of Proverbs, that having a humble spirit and having a teachable attitude, willing to listen, willing to always learn, that becomes the greatest pathway for gaining more wisdom. And the best place to admit that we don't know and will never know everything is in regards to the subject of God. And that's what he's acknowledging here. I admit I don't know everything about the Holy One, he's saying. I humbly admit God is too great. He's too magnificent. His ways are beyond finding out. And he just acknowledges, I will never know everything that there is to know about God. And I tell you, that, that there's something very healthy about being able to come to terms with mystery when it pertains to God and a lack of understanding. Because I'll tell you, one of the quickest ways to get a self-righteous or an arrogant spirit or to really stop learning for that matter is to begin to kind of grasp this mindset that somehow you've got the corner and, and, and the awareness and the perspective on everything there is to know about God, whether it's this theological subject or that theological subject. And sadly, this is, I think, when people create whole theologies and doctrines sometimes that they build their whole spiritual life upon my concern is, is that's one of the downsides of that because the Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And a great danger we can have at times is not just acting like a know-it-all in life in general, but if as a Christian in some way, we start to think somehow, I've got a perfect grasp on the word of God, I know everything about God's ways and those people don't, and my idea is right and everyone else's is wrong, and what a beautiful humility here, this man speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, look, I don't have a full knowledge of the Holy One. I'm still learning. I'm constantly growing. I'll tell you, that's something that really keeps us learning what matters, which is just getting to know God as a life journey and continuing to just grow and getting to understand. In fact, the Bible teaches, if you just read it, that we're going to learn for all of eternity. 
And for the ages to come, Ephesians 2 says, he'll be showing us the incomparable, incomparable excuse me, riches of his kindness and grace in Christ. So all heaven will be characterized by learning even as a part of our worship. So verse 4, he then begins to ask some questions. He says, who is ascended into heaven or descended? Now, these are kind of rhetorical questions. The answer should be obvious. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? In other words, who set the boundaries of all of the earth and creation? What is his name? And then notice, what is his son's name if you know? So clearly, again, any degree of humility and proper reason would lead us, as we look at those questions that he puts forth there, to know that no mortal being can do any of those things there described, right? No mortal being can ascend up to heaven and then descend back down to earth and ascend up to heaven and descend back down to earth and freely move between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. No mortal human being can do that. No mortal human being can gather the wind. Again, this powerful, unseen, invisible force that we can control the wind and gather it in our hand and the idea is control it to make it go whatever way we want to, to make the wind to cease or to cause the wind to blow. Who's bound the waters in his garment? The idea is being able to take up all the waters of the earth and to take them under your control, to hold them in your possession, or who has established the ends of the earth. The idea here is only God. It's very clear the point he's getting to is only God has these capabilities by his supreme power to do these things, so wisdom realizes that the limitations of our human lives, our humanity, and what is impossible for men, because that's what he's describing in verse 4 there, things that are impossible for men, thankfully, they're all still possible with God. Because the things that we can't do, which is like control creation and the powerful forces that exist, God has limitless power, thank goodness, and powerful forces that we have no control over like the wind and the ocean tides that are so strong and the, the boundaries of the earth and being able to easily pass back and forth between the dimensions of what's eternal and what's temporal. All these things that we're limited in and all these powerful forces, the Bible's reminding us they're easily under God's control. He's the one that's created all those forces. He's the one that controls all those forces, whether it's creation, whether it's spiritual things, you know, as I read these words here, it reminds me of Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, you might want to just jot that in your Bible or in your notes there because it's a great companion passage that just describes the limitless power of God and that there's nothing beyond God's power. And the writer realized that this God of all power, notice he also mentions verse 4, what is his name? Of course, it's Yahweh God. That's his name, Jehovah God, the Alpha and the Omega. But then he adds, and what is his son's name? Now, understand, to the Jewish mind, that was a little bit shocking because many would say very emphatically, there's no way God has a son. God does not have a son. But yet, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, God directly says, you are my beloved son. God references himself speaking in the first person, you are my son. So God does have a son. And we know, of course, on this side of the veil of Christ's coming, that that is absolutely essential because that's the route to our salvation, right? The fact that God has a son and that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life and that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So we know and we have the privilege to be able to know the answer. What is his name? Yahweh God. And what is his son's name? Jesus, Yeshua. God is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, the Bible says, for he shall save his people from their sins. And you know what? Those who know that have leaps and bounds more wisdom than anybody walking the planet. You may think, man, I'm just a complete fool. Well, look, if you know the answer to those questions, you're three steps ahead of most human beings walking around the planet. Because the Bible says it's the fool who says in their heart, there's no God. The idea literally is no God. They say no to God. So if you're saying yes to God and you understand God in the fullest sense, which is knowing his son, which is truly what it means, according to John 17, to know God, to know Jesus, uh, you've got great wisdom to live out your life already. Verse 5, he then says, and every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So here we get a exaltation of the word of God, the value of God's word, as well as a strong caution of doing anything to add to, to contribute in some way, thinking that we can make better the word of God. He begins with that very wise declaration under the inspiration of the spirit saying, verse five, every word of God is pure. So again, Certainly, if we're thinking of the written word of God, that is absolutely true. God's written word, given by God's Holy Spirit, stands alone in its original writings as perfect and without any error. This is what we mean when we talk about that the word of God is not only inspired, but we call it infallible. That there is no error in it. That there's nothing polluted that God's word, when originally given by God's spirit in its original content, is completely pure. There's nothing in it that's defective, and we can trust scripture has no corruption, and, and, and it's not going in any way to ever defile our lives because God's word is pure. And so as God's word comes into our life, all it does is purge the impurities out of my life. It just comes into my life and it adds light to my mind and light to my soul and all the things within me and within you, and there's plenty in there, is there not, whether in our minds or in our hearts, there's lots of impurities in us. And so God's word, like a supernatural medicine, if you would, goes into the heart and the life of a person and it has this very pure and purifying effect. And because God's word is pure in its content, in its spiritual DNA, that's why God's word is so powerful, right? There is nothing in my life that has changed my life more than just spending time alone with the purity of the word of God and ingesting God's word and reading God's word. And look, it doesn't mean that it's always fireworks and bells and whistles anyway than you know, perhaps from the moment that you get married as much as I hope you have a wonderful intimacy with your spouse it's not bells and whistles and fireworks 24 7 right but the longer you spend time together there's a depth that goes further in the relationship it's the same way with feeding upon food right I've been married to my wife for over 28 years now 
if my estimation is correct, perhaps not breakfast, but many lunches and every dinner pretty much she's made for me for lots and lots of years. Now, I probably couldn't recall much more than the menu of last night's dinner. And it's because it was stuffed peppers and it was pretty good. And I just ate it for leftovers before I came up here. But I can tell you this, I can't recall the menus, but I am absolutely certain every one of those meals nourished me and helped my health. And see, the same thing with God's word. Oh, I don't feel like I got very much out of it when I read it. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> because you just sowed spiritual DNA that is pure and powerful into your soul. And that spirit-inspired, incorruptible seed of the word of God went into your life. Psalm 119 says the entrance of God's word gives life. And there is nothing more pure and more powerful that can have a wonderful effect in our life than this book. Look, that is why it is so valuable to be in God's word every single day as a discipline, looking for God to speak to you, whether it's as loud as a megaphone or whether it's just a faint whisper or whether it's just a simple reminder that this is what's wrong and, okay, that's what's right. And, and just to, to be able to give us that continuous foundation in our life. And I'll, t I'll tell you this too. As I look at what's unfolded over the years, I can tell you this now with some degree of, uh, I feel like some validity to it, you know, with where I'm at in pastoral ministry, uh, I, I can tell you, and, I, and often I'll say this at times when I talk to people in counseling, I'll say, you know, what I've come to, to watch by way of observation is typically the people who most consistently are sitting in the sanctuary at times when the church gathers Sundays, Wednesdays, when men's Bible studies are happening, women's Bible studies are happening, typically, pretty accurately, proportionally, those are the people that need the least amount of counseling. And do you want to know why that is? Because they're constantly being exposed to the Word of God. I used to have one pastoral friend back when I was pastoring uh, back in York, Pennsylvania, the Calvary Chapel there, and he said one time, jokingly, but I think he was somewhat serious, he said, at times when people call me for counseling, I say, look, I do counseling twice a week, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And if you don't come to those counseling sessions, I'm not spending an hour to meet with you special if you don't even care about the counseling that I do twice a week consistently all the time. Maybe if you started doing that, maybe you wouldn't need me to counsel you anymore. Because we know the truth of the matter is, right, that when we get into God's word, we read it for ourselves. And when we're sitting in the midst of an assembly meeting and God's word's being taught and his spirit is ministering supernaturally through the word of God as we study it as an act of worship, is it not true? I've been on the other side of the pulpit for plenty of occasions just like where oftentimes our questions get answered and God reinforces something he's kind of been talking to us about or he challenges us on something or he assures us about something. And so many times we're just receiving counsel from God's word by just being in it. But it's amazing how some people... They don't want to exercise that discipline, but, but then they always need personal private counseling all the time. And you wonder if maybe there's a correlation to that. And I'm not saying there's not a time to sit and to get some counsel and input and advice. What I'm saying is the wonderful thing is that if we truly esteem in wisdom what the writer of Proverbs is saying here, God's word is pure and it's powerful and it will have a powerful effect upon our lives it's amazing the transformation it can bring in our lives and all the benefits it can bring if we truly value it. And he says he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. And here the idea seems to be those who put their trust in God by trusting the purity of his word and saying, God, your way is right, not my thoughts, 
Your way is right according to your word, not the patterns of the world. Your way is right according to what your word says, not the ideas of present culture in this generation. God, I am going to trust in you by trusting in your word. He says that when we do that, that God becomes a shield to us. The idea is he actually begins to work in a way whereby our life becomes preserved and protected by the truth of God's word. And what a wonderful thing to have that advantage because at times my thoughts can be wrong, my feelings can be off base. You know, we're hearing all this junk pumped into our heads out in the world and ideas and people saying this and that. But the wonderful thing is if we trust in God by trusting in the truth of his word as the authority over everything else, as the final answer to everything, it becomes a wonderful thing in our life whereby it shields us, keeps us safe, and it protects us from a lot of dumb stuff. And it shields us from a lot of wrong ideas and paths that will go running down that end up just being wrong paths that we got to make U-turns or then we're you know, having car wrecks and turning around and trying to repair things. And he says, just trust God's word and, and, and watch how as you trust God and his word, how it will shield your life in many ways. And because it is so sufficient, and that's the key why he says, verse six, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the implication, it's very foolish as well as very dangerous to add to God's words. Very dangerous, very foolish. That was a mistake that happened, remember, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When you go back and read Eve's conversation with Satan, that's exactly what begins to happen. He says to her regarding the fruit that was forbidden to eat, God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The devil starts to get her into dialogue and starts you know, getting her to question, you shall not surely die. And she, she's, well, well, we, we're told that we're not supposed to touch it or to eat it. Wait a minute, God never said anything about touching it. God said, just don't eat it. And what did she do? She added to the word of God and was already creating confusion in her mind because she was adding things that were not there in regards to God's word. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest mistakes we can make as human beings is to, at times, begin to add things that God's word doesn't really say. And we draw conclusions and we make deduction. Well, if God's word says this, well, wait a minute, but God's word doesn't say that. That's your conclusion. You're making a logical conclusion, but that's not in Scripture. And so we have to be very careful that we're not adding things to the truth of God's word that God's word doesn't say, because to do that is to indicate God's word is insufficient, to indicate somehow that we have to add to the word of God something to help it or to modify it, or worse, God forbid, to think we have to add to it to make it more digestible so that people will accept it and, and it'll be more palatable and relative. Look, God's word is fully sufficient. It is pure. Don't mess with the recipe, right? It's pure, it's perfect, it's powerful. Leave it as it is. Let God's word do what it does. He says there's a severe danger when we add to his words, lest you have God himself rebuke you, and that's not a rebuke you want to face, and be found to be a liar, because what does the Bible say? Let God be true and every man a liar, right? So we want to stand on the truth of God's word. It is fully sufficient in its power and all that it's declaring. Verse 7, he says, two things I request of you. Seems, again, notice the capital U. He's, he's making a prayer now. 
Deprive me not before I die, he says, God. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches and feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and then steal and profane the name of my God. So here, this seems to be now this man, Agor, kind of making a humble prayer unto God as the provider of all things. And he asks God, really here, if you would, to, if you would, work in a way whereby the thing that would be preserved in his life above all else would be his spiritual health. And you can tell by the two requests that he makes that his top priority in his prayer isn't his comfort. Now, that's unusual, is it not, for the way that you and I often at pray times? His top priority in his prayer is not circumstances being the way he'd like them to be. It's not a change of his situation. It's not getting something that he really wants. God, I really want that, so can you please make this work out that way? His simple prayer, when you boil down to the essence of what he's asking, is, God, I'm asking you to do these things because I want to be spiritually healthy. I just want to be in right relationship with you. Look what he says. Two things I'm requesting of you, God. First of all, verse 8. Here's the first request. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. So he's asking God to keep him from falsehood and lies. That is, keep him from being deceived. That's one way falsehood and lies can come into our life, right? Where we're deceived and we're misguided. Another way, maybe he's also implying when he asks God to keep falsehood and lies far from him, is also maybe perhaps he's praying as well, wanting to be healthy spiritually. God, please don't let me engage in falsehood and lies myself. In other words, God, I'm asking you, please don't let me become dishonest in my way of life. I don't want to become a hypocrite, God. I don't want to begin to live in a way where we would say, I'm living a lie. And he's saying, God, please keep that from me. I don't want to enter into that kind of a lifestyle where I'm pretending to have a right relationship with you, but yet I'm basically just living a lie and putting forth a false image with people around me because he says, God, that's not healthy spiritually. Please don't let that happen in my life. And then the second request he makes there in our verses going on in verse 8 and through the remainder of verse 9 is he says, look, give me neither poverty nor riches but feed me with the food allotted to me. In other words, his second request, he's asking God to supply in moderation only what's needed to be sufficient for his life. Now, that's an interesting prayer, right? I mean, certainly we're definitely going to pray, Lord, please don't give me poverty. Please, Lord. Please, no poverty, Lord. No poverty at all. But how often do we go, Lord, please don't make me rich. How many people pray that? <laughs> Lord, please, please. I pray this year when I have my evaluation that my employer will tell me that they just can't give me a raise this year. Please, Lord, don't enrich my life. How many people really pray that way, right? But what he's genuinely praying is, Lord, I don't want to not have enough and struggle, but Lord, I'm also praying, please, don't give me any more than I need. Don't give me excess to a degree that it could have any detrimental effect upon what? Not my circumstantial life, my relationship with you, God. God, don't give me more than I should have. He says, just feed me with the food allotted for me. Give me neither poverty 
nor riches. I'm fine with middle ground, Lord, he's saying there. He simply desired God to supply what was necessary for everyday living, not abundance nor lack. Because why? Because both extremes can cause us to get into struggles. And that's what he's describing there. He says, God, just give me what's efficient. Verse 9, lest I be fool. The idea is I have excess. I'm in luxury. I, you know, I, I'm, in a sense, prospering. And in my prosperity, I end up denying you and forgetting who the Lord is. And that is a danger of prosperity, right? And the Word of God teaches that. You see it in Deuteronomy 8. We see it in 1 Timothy 6 in a New Testament reference. This danger of prosperity, because sometimes in prosperity and luxury, when wealth increases, there is this tendency sometimes that all of a sudden people don't have as much interest in prayer or the Word of God or they don't have time for church because now it's boating season or, you know, and, and just all of a sudden it does begin to have that effect. And money just becomes, in a sense, the solution to their problem. And it's amazing how Jesus even warned did he not, of the deceitfulness of riches and, and, and how that can have that effect upon us. And in the same way, he says, Lord, please, I'm asking, don't let me become poor because I don't want to be tempted to compromise and steal and do something wrong because I'm struggling financially so that I make a compromise ethically because I'm struggling financially and I end up stealing or doing something immoral and dishonor you and basically, you know, tarnish my relationship as well as tarnish my testimony by doing a wrong thing. So very interesting the way that we find him praying. He cares most about his spiritual health. Great reminder for how we pray. Wise people recognize what is the most important thing? Our spiritual health. Because if our spiritual health is what it should be, the rest really is all secondary in our lives. Verse 10, he says, and do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. So here he seems to be cautioning against two things. One, the idea is sort of beware of criticizing others too harshly, too quickly, maligning a servant to his master. He says, lest that come back on you and maybe your error end up being exposed. So it's sort of a caution to use wisdom, to not be too quick to harshly criticize other people because you may end up being more harshly criticized and looking foolish yourself at times. And the other side, I think, of the caution here is a word of wisdom, really, of just not interfering at times in relationship between two other people that it's no really our business to get involved in. Look what he says there. Don't malign a servant to his master. In other words, that's between him and his master. And again, the other... Do you know what your servant is doing? Do you know what your worker is doing? Do you know what this person... And, and basically, God is saying, look, that's between the master and his servant. That's not your business. Stop meddling. Sometimes it's best to just stay out of other people's business, right? And, and we, we've seen Proverbs about this, about meddling, like taking a dog by the ears, right? And, just, and then you end up getting bit and you wonder, man. And sometimes God's saying, if you just wouldn't have meddled. That was between them in their relationship. Sometimes the relationship is between two people. And on occasion, the best thing to do, unless we're needing or in a sense being invited into it, is sometimes just to keep quiet and maybe not to criticize a person to another person or not to say something to bring to their attention, but let God speak to people. And sometimes just keeping quiet is sometimes the wisest thing to do. Verse 11, he says, and there's a generation that curses its father, doesn't bless its mother, a generation that's pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. 
There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation, verse 14, whose teeth are like swords, whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy among men. So he describes here, again, this repetition, verse 11 through 14, of a unhealthy generation. An unhealthy generation of people living during a certain time period who basically were living foolishly, and he reflects in verses 11 through 14, some of the characterizing marks of their foolish behavior. Some of the things about this unhealthy generation that makes them foolish and unhealthy. Four things he draws attention to by way of summary. Verse 11, the first thing he says about this unhealthy generation, he says is they're extremely disrespectful. You see that in verse 11? There's a generation, he says there, that curses their father and does not bless their mother. In other words, they don't honor authority. They're extremely disrespectful in their attitudes. They lack proper appreciation and respect. They're very unthankful. And God says that's a part of what makes them a very unhealthy generation. The second thing he mentions in verse 12 of this unhealthy generation, he describes in verse 12 how this generation that's unhealthy is self-deceived. Because he says there that that generation is pure in its own eyes and it's not washed from its filthiness that is the wrong things it's doing. So it's a generation that's self-deceived and basically they think all their ideas are right. And it doesn't matter how everybody else has done things in prior generations, our generation has figured it all out. Now, I know for centuries and centuries and centuries, all you human beings were doing things one way, but our generation, we finally figured this stuff out. And we're the enlightened generation, and God says everything is right in their eyes, but yet they don't even realize they're not washed from their own filthiness. The idea is their, their minds are completely confused, but they can't see their own error, and they have no shame in their arrogancy and their self-deception. He also mentions thirdly in verse 13 how this generation is clearly very proud and arrogant in how they operate, how they're lofty in their own eyes and lifted up in their attitudes. And then fourthly in verse 14, how they also are characterized by being very cruel in their spirit how there's a lack of compassion. They don't really care about individuals. He says their teeth are like swords and their fangs are like knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy among men. So the picture there is just a lack of care for humanity. They have no concern for people. They basically see people as just resources to use and to devour and there's no real sense of caring about human life or valuing people. He describes particularly how their mouths, notice their mouths are pictured, the words they speak and the things they say, like teeth that are swords and, and their tongues are, are like knives, just destroying and causing painful things to happen in people's lives. Again, just devouring people with their mouths and the things that they say. Verse 15, he says, the leech, this is picturesque, look at this, the leech has two daughters. Here's their names, give and give. <laughs> and that's really picturesque, isn't it? The leech has two daughters, give and give. And what are leeches? Well, they're blood-sucking parasites, right, that find victims and they selfishly take and then take 
and then take, and then they take a little more. And they never offer anything in return, right? A leech contributes absolutely nothing. It attaches to a host, and it simply wants that host to give it everything that it desires. And like a blood-sucking parasite, a leech just attaches to its victim and gratifies its own desire and takes and takes and takes. And I think what God is just simply reminding us here, folks, to some degree, is it's wise to realize some people, they just operate like a leech. And you got to recognize that once in a while. You got to recognize on occasion if somebody is operating like a leech to kind of notice what's going on and to do what you can to get that leech detached from you before it ends up sucking the life out of you and just bringing more harm in the big picture. He goes on to say, and there are three things that are never satisfied, four never say enough. So the picture here is these are four things that are never fulfilled. They're things that are always yearning for more. And very interesting, what are they? He says the grave. Never fulfilled, always yearning for more. Well, that's true, isn't it? Because no matter how many people die, sadly, what's the grave doing? It never says, oh, that's enough. Take a break for a while. I don't want any more death on the earth. No, the grave's always waiting for its next victim, right? The grave is never fulfilled. Death is something that never ceases. There's never a cessation of death on this earth. Someone is always dying or will always be dying. And that's simply a part of life's existence. And to some degree, the wise person recognizes that, that it is just a continuous cycle of one person after another dying as we're journeying through this earth. It's a part of our experience. Another thing he says that's never satisfied is the barren womb, and that's very picturesque as well. Again, the, the, the woman who's unable to conceive will always keep yearning and yearning and yearning with the hope that somehow miraculously she will conceive and become a mother. And it's hard to satisfy that yearning in the barren womb of a woman. The earth that's never satisfied with water, the picture there is a parched ground and drought, always needing more water constantly because water equates to life. And then the fourth thing he references is the fire. Again, as fire goes raging and burning, it never burns to a certain amount and that says, okay, that's enough. I don't want to bring any more destruction. Right? Fire doesn't do that. Fire just keeps devouring and destroying constantly. It's a very devastating force. So a fire must be extinguished where it will just keep burning and keep devouring. It's not something that's just going to cease in compassion. Verse 17, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother. So now we're back to the disrespectful child again, rebellious. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So this picture is the disrespectful child that rudely mistreats their parents, rebels against them. And notice that path of rebellion and that pattern of disrespect, it never ends up successful when a child behaves that way. In fact, it always ends up the opposite. It ends up bringing shame and ruin and problems. In a very picturesque way here, he pictures the rebellious, disrespectful child toward their parents as, as finding themselves out in the field where the ravens of the valley and the young eagles are, are not only killing, but picking its eyes out, like laying there like a corpse, dead, and these birds of prey coming and 
plucking their eyes out and kind of this gross image here. And it's just a picture of how disrespect warrants and ultimately brings severe punishment. And it always equates to suffering. And it's interesting to me that it pictures the idea of like their eye being plucked out and the eagle coming and eating their eye because to me, I think it's a good reminder that one of the downsides to a disrespectful young person is they end up losing their ability to see clearly. And you show me a young person who's become very disrespectful, and I will show you a young person who's incredibly blinded. And they just don't see clearly. Their vision's all messed up. And their perspective on everything is wrong because the disrespect has kind of blinded their proper view on things. Verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, he says, four which I don't understand. The idea is some things in life are they're just majestic. Uh, they're just... Interesting and hard to fully grasp. He says, the way of the eagle in the air. Again, how does that happen? And amazing how it manages to do that and just soars so easily. He says, it just blows my mind. The way of a serpent on a rock, how it slithers around and moves in the way that it does with the muscular movements that it does moving around. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. And the way of a man with a virgin. And the way of a man with a virgin seems to imply that idea of like young, passionate love and infatuation, right? That whole when, you know, a young man meets a young woman and they're starting to fall in love and they're both awkward and weird and he's trying to pursue her and just there's kind of that love thing and, and happening there. And he says, you know, it's just something really very beautiful about that. It's mysterious it's just a marvelous thing that happens when two young people fall in love, just trying to work through the awkwardness to find their connection with one another. And he says it's just something that's really just too wonderful to even put into words and to fully understand how God is a way of doing that, that young love among lives. Verse 20, and this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and then says, I have done no wickedness. Wow, that's strong. The picture there of the adulterous woman really depicts just this callous heart that uses people for sexual gratification alone. And that's what's being described here of the adulterous woman. Without any regard for the damage it brings into a person's life or to a marriage, she's just seen here in this picture as satisfying an appetite alone. Just like eating a meal, she just satisfies an appetite sexually uses someone as a resource without any care or any shame for wrongdoing. She just wipes her mouth. I didn't do anything wrong. Where's the next meal? And God here just gives this strong depiction. Again, just like it's wise to realize, folks, that some people are leeches, it's also wise to realize that some people have that kind of a callous attitude, and they will only see and use people in life as a sexual resource. And be careful. And don't be naive to think that that doesn't happen. And again, we think, oh, only men are like that. Only men are like that. They're pigs. They're dogs. Well, the Holy Spirit chose to portray even women like that. And so it's important to realize that there are some who simply see sex not as something for an expression of fulfillment and connection between a husband and a wife and the safe boundaries of a lifelong marriage relationship, but there are others who simply have a sexual desire like an appetite, and, and they'll just satisfy their desire and wipe their mouth and move on. And they don't care of the damage it brings to the person or, God forbid, the damage it can even bring to 
a marriage. Again, this was the adulterous woman. For three things, verse 21, the earth is perturbed. Yes, four, it can't bear up. So here we're going to get a list of intolerable things. He's going to describe things that are hard to put up with. They're intolerable, difficult to handle. First one, verse 22, for a servant when he reigns. And the picture there is someone who obtains leadership and power, but because they were a servant and they weren't really ready for that power yet, they weren't prepared properly for leadership when they assumed it, they didn't handle it correctly, and so that servant just starts abusing his power because he's not ready for leadership and he doesn't know how to handle it properly, and he says, boy, that's a pretty intolerable thing. It is a really difficult thing when someone assumes a role of leadership and they're not properly prepared for that leadership, and they become a horrible leader, and everybody suffers underneath of them because of that. That's a difficult thing to have to bear up under. The other thing he says that's hard to deal with is a fool when he's filled with food, and this seems to speak of someone who, like a fool, has no appreciation for what they have. They're filled with food, but they don't appreciate it, and probably they're just still whining. Where's my next meal? I didn't like this, and again, it kind of pictures that unappreciative entitlement mentality, filled with food. You got a full belly, bro. There's people who are hungry on the earth, and you're complaining because you didn't have this, or why didn't we get to eat that? And again, this is kind of that picture of just that entitlement, unappreciative type of attitude. That's a hard thing to have to deal with when people get like that. The third thing he mentions that's a difficult thing to bear up under is a hateful woman when she is married. Now, that has self-explanation. I'll move on. Verse 23, the fourth thing, a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. Now, really, verse 23, the first and the second analogy, really just describe the same thing. It pictures a woman who's unable, if you would, to be satisfied. She's kind of resentful. She's embittered. She's always angry. And he says, man, that, that, that's a hard thing to bear up under, being married to someone who's always miserable who's always being mean, always being nasty, just you know, hateful and spiteful in their spirit. He says, boy, that, that will really create a very difficult experience for someone to live under. Verse 24, there are four things which are little on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare food in the summer. The rock badgers or the cronies, often are referred to as well, the conies, excuse me, not the cronies, the conies, are a feeble folk. My brain goes to places sometimes, I don't know. Yet they make their homes in the crags, in the rocky places, the idea is. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps its hands, and it is in king's palaces. So here he describes, notice, four things, he says, which they're little on the earth. In other words, these are you know, small, insignificant creatures, ants, uh, these rock badgers, which if you've ever gone to Israel, we go to the area of, of En Gedi, and these are basically just like, uh, what would I say? They're, they're, they're like uh, big rodents. They're like hamsters on steroids. I mean, that's kind of what these, what these rock badgers are like in Israel. They hide in the rocky areas. Locusts, of course, not very you know, big, and a, a small spider, all things that are little, they have small amounts of strength, they're kind of somewhat insignificant creatures, again, it's not a roaring lion or something like this, but notice he says, though these little creatures, we might say they all have shortcomings, those shortcomings can be overcome by wisdom. 
And this seems to be the idea that the writer is speaking about here, that shortcomings can be overcome by wisdom, even if there are weaknesses and vulnerability, if wisdom is employed in how affairs are handled, weaknesses can be overcome. Shortcomings can be overcome. And he uses these analogies, the ants, right? You've seen an ant, not like it's a super intimidating thing that you can't stop somehow, this very tiny little ant. But he says, ants exercise wisdom in that they prepare their food in summer. In other words, ants display wisdom because we might say they make preparations. They prepare well. They do what is necessary to plan ahead and to prepare well, and therefore they have what they need because of proper planning, proper preparations, making things ready. And that's a very wise thing to do, to be someone who prepares well, plan ahead, make preparations. That's wisdom, and that wisdom can help overcome limitations and shortcomings by just preparing well. He mentions verse 26, the rock badgers or these little conies, as I described, that they're very feeble, these creatures. They're just kind of, you know, mid-sized rodents, but yet they go and they, they hide in the rocky crag areas. And what they do is they're shielding themselves from danger. So what they do is they strategically make good use of what's available to them. And this is the picture of wisdom here. That wisdom, like these creatures, strategically makes good use of what's available to shield ourselves from danger. So maybe you don't have this or you don't have that, but, but what's available? Be strategic. Look around you. These creatures strategically hide out in the rocks as their defense system, and they make good use of what is available to them. They know what they lack, but they make good use of what's available to them by using wise strategy. The third creature he mentions are the locusts, which have no king. Seems there's no commanding locust. There's no king ruling over them, yet they all advance in ranks. Now, we understand, right, that locusts can have a very powerful effect on a landscape, right, when they come in a swarm. But notice, as creatures, they don't require a set leader because what they understand is the value of working together. They work together. And in orderly ranks, he says, they advance in ranks operating in an orderly way because they understand the importance of cooperation and partnership. And so they don't need a whole lot of leadership because they recognize the value of functioning in a unified way and in an orderly fashion working in partnership as a unit. And again, God says, take note of the wisdom there. Work in partnership. Work in unison with others. Don't be an independent individual. Don't be someone who thinks you can operate without others. God's encouraging us, look, live in cooperation. Function in partnership. Find others that you can work. Be a cooperative person and work together in partnership. The way to advance in life is not to advance independently, to advance in ranks. Stay in rank and file with the other soldiers, with the comrades around you. That's the way to advance and not to have to retreat by working in ranks with others. And then verse 28, the spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it ends up being in king's palaces. And look, isn't that interesting? How many times, right, do you find that spider in your house, and you're thinking, how did that thing get in here? Where did that get in here at? I didn't invite it in. It just found its way in here. And again, why? Because spiders have this unique ability. They're opportunists. And they are very good at finding opportunity to find opening 
to enter in to such a degree, they end up getting to live in king's palaces. Imagine that. The king builds a palace, and the spider gets to live in it because he was a good opportunist. And again, God's saying there is wisdom in being someone that sees opportunities and takes advantage of them and doesn't let them pass by. You see an opportunity, take advantage of it. God says that's wise. Don't be foolish. Don't give up opportunities when you see them in front of you. Now, let me just spiritually kind of put a a closure on that. We'll wrap up with those verses this evening because I think we can learn the same wisdom from that on a spiritual level as well. And let me just kind of conclude with these, if you would, application points to these five different little creatures that are seen as wise. Just like the ant, wise people should prepare spiritually. That's what wise people do. Wise people prepare spiritually and make sure they're ready. They make sure they're saved. They make sure they're ready for the return of the Lord. They prepare themselves accordingly to live a fruitful spiritual life. They build their rock, their their life on the rock so they can weather the storm. Secondly, just like the, the rock badgers, wise people, knowing we are weak and feeble, we should seek refuge. Guess where? In Jesus, in the rock of ages. We should seek refuge in the Lord. And we should seek to hide our lives in the shelter of the Lord to spare us from ruin in our lives. Thirdly, wise people, just like the locusts, here's the benefit we have, we get to follow a king. They don't have a king. But we get to follow a king, and more than that, not just following a king, we have to remember as God's people, we are all following the same king, which means that we all should be advancing like good soldiers of Jesus Christ, staying in the ranks. And if you want to advance in spiritual life, wise people understand no solo Christianity. Christians advance because they wisely stay in the ranks, stay in the ranks of the body of Christ. It's through mutual partnership and doing life together and camaraderie, that's how we advance in the kingdom of God. That's how we move forward and become effective spiritually. And just like those spiders, wise people also, fourthly, should use opportunities set before us by God. Again, we get the privilege, think about it, just like those spiders, (laughs) those spiders get the privilege to live in a king's palace. They did nothing to contribute it to But how about you and I? One day we're going to get to live in a king's palace like that crummy little spider and we contribute nothing to it. God gives us that ultimate eternal dwelling. What a wonderful thing. Let's stand.